Okay, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming out today to our 26th annual Dead of Winter. Um, we, uh, we started doing this as a food drive, I guess, about 10 years or so ago. And um, we really appreciate all of the stuff that you guys have brought. I mean, we're already got, and not even everybody's here yet. We've already got a pile of stuff. So I tried to rig one of the tables so it would collapse this year, like last year, but um, they made me fix them. So I, the, the girls said, no, we can't do that. So it was a big mess last year. So although last year we destroyed the table. So this year we just would have felt. But anyway, uh, so thank you so much for bringing everything out. Um, the Alton Food Crisis Center really appreciates it. Uh, they're like floored every time they come. And so we're hoping this year that we can't fit it all in the van, that they have to go and come back. It's only a few blocks away, but that's our hope. Uh, and we were smart enough to bring boxes this year. Yay. So, <laughs> which usually it just meant me and the guy from the food bank on Monday morning carrying everything out a bag at a time, which was really slow going. So, anyway, Anyway, um, those of you who have not been here before, uh, welcome for the first time. For those of you who've been coming every year, we're glad to see you. Uh, the vendor room, as you probably figured out, is over there to uh, the, which is my left, your right, uh, but through the doorway over there that is open. Uh, see, visit the vendor room. Uh, if you're looking for my books, if you go in there and go, hey, where's your table? Uh, it's upstairs. Uh, we have our bookstore open up on the first floor. Um, we don't always have that open except for events, so it's here and open today day, so uh, feel free to stop by. Uh, my new book uh, is available here first. We've got some of those on the back table. And just stop me. I have pens in my pocket. They make me carry them. And I will just stop and sign your book for you um, So and devalue it so it won't be worth what you paid for it. Anyway, so restrooms, my advice is to use the restrooms in the back rather than the ones upstairs. Half the time those are locked. Um, so just there's restrooms straight back through the doorway at the back of the wall. Uh, if you are looking for drinks, um, as you notice, there is no coffee this year, unfortunately. Uh, the folks that usually did that retired, and we couldn't get any, we couldn't get any local people to do it. So don't buy their coffee. I'm, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. Anyway, uh, so we don't have coffee, but we do have soft drinks up in the bookstore upstairs if you're interested and you need something. If you are here as a VIP and you have lunch as part of your package, lunch will be upstairs in the crystal room uh, because <laughs> Bluff City Grill, where we normally have it, had a water main break and they have been closed since the end of December. Uh, they are reopening, but we had lunch catered instead. So we will see you upstairs. Uh, last thing I think before Cody and I get started, uh, we uh, are also collecting ghost stories today. So if you've got a ghost story or had something weird happen to you, stop in at the bookstore upstairs. Sam is recording those and you get to be on the podcast. Or not, if you don't want to be, then you've just told a story for no reason. But if you'd like to be on the podcast, uh, we are collecting stories. So don't forget to stop in and sit down with her and she will re and she is a therapist. So if you've had anything else you need to talk about, she can help you with that too. Uh, so anyway, and hey, God knows this is a room full of people who probably need one, including up here on the stage. So anyway, we are getting ready to get started here. Um, as you guys know, we, we normally do an episode um, of the podcast that um, is unrelated to what we normally do. Okay, well... We would have our logo go up, but the slides won't move. Um, we normally do an episode that has nothing to do with the season that we're in. 
Uh, but actually, this one turned out to have one. I just always try to do a winter uh, story, and it, it happened. So, anyway, we are uh, we're going to do uh, we're going to do this, and uh, then we'll ask for your participation here in a couple of minutes. And we're actually going to have this up on Tuesday. Got it. <laughs> okay. All right. So, you ready? Ready. Okay. It was an otherwise ordinary cold winter's day on January 15th, 1919, near Prescott, Iowa. I'm not kidding. I was doing sound effects. I mean, I had all the music that you heard was not a track because I didn't know how to do it yet. So, I would just play music in my office in the background and then just talk over it. And so all I could do is hope to God I didn't make any mistakes. You're good to go and I'm just not right. gonna touch shit at all. Yeah, all right, are we ready now? Ready. Okay, now we're ready. All right. <clears throat> it was an otherwise ordinary cold, I just said, you know, this is not gonna take 45 minutes. Okay, anyway. It was an otherwise ordinary cold winter's day on January 15th, 1919, near Prescott, Iowa. Alan Taylor was a local farmer taking care of his farm chores that morning when he was startled to see a neighbor girl, Irene Hoskins, who was 15, outside of his barn. She stumbled toward him, blood running down the side of her head, begging for help. As she collapsed into his arms, she blurted out that her father, John Hoskins, had murdered her stepmother, Hulda along with her children. Alan could scarcely believe it. He'd known John Hoskins for many years and couldn't imagine that he would have done such a terrible thing. John was a widower with two children, Irene and Merlin. In 1915, he'd married Holda Campbell, a widow with two children, a son named Roy who was 12 and a daughter Gladys who was 18. As far as everyone knew, John and Holda were very happy and the family was well liked in the area. It seemed impossible that John could have killed him. But here was Irene, covered with blood, and insisting that her father was a murderer. Alan took Irene into the house and used the telephone to call for help. And what Alan and his neighbors would find that day at the Hoskins farm was something they wouldn't forget for the rest of their lives. Welcome to a recording of a special Dead of Winter episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore in the dark side of American history. This episode is written and performed by Troy Taylor and produced by co-hosted, oh, and co-hosted, sorry, by Cody Back. And for this one, we're recording it live at the annual Dead of Winter Festival in Alton, Illinois on February 10th, 2024. Just keep in mind, this isn't usually done live in front of an audience, so you may have to suffer through mistakes, technical workshops, which we've already had, restarts, fixing typos, and the cursing that goes along with it. We always think we have a handle on this, but that's usually when something goes terribly wrong. So bear with us. We still, even after eight seasons, have no idea what we're doing. So welcome to all of our guests who are with us today and all of you who are tuning in to hear what happened on Tuesday, February 13th. We appreciate all of you more than you know, because as we always say, we couldn't and definitely wouldn't do it without all of you. The support you've given us as listeners and Patreon supporters over the past years, and all the ideas, reviews, and comments you've given us too. Season eight of the podcast is just getting started. We hope to have many seasons still to come. So again, thank you. For the rest of you who are sitting out here now, confused about who we are and what we're doing, join the club, because we don't know those things either. 
But if you want to know, this show is called American Hauntings. And if you check wherever you listen to podcasts, look for the logo that you'll see behind us on screen, which is not up because, hey, you want to hit that arrow on that? See where the progresses? You sure about that? There we go. Okay. All right. Nice. So we have done 145 episodes. So if you're listening for the very first time, you can waste a lot of time with the stuff that you know, we've done that you're supposed to be doing something else. But for now, on with today's show. Alan Taylor's call that morning went to the home of a friend and another close neighbor, Chester Wood. He soon arrived at Alan's place and found Irene there with blood all over her dress. He also found it difficult to believe that John was capable of murder, but it was apparent that something terrible had happened. Together, the two men went to the Hoskins farm and quickly realized that Irene's story was true. Holda's body was lying on the back porch. Her dress was soaked with blood. As they approached, John Hoskins emerged from the shadows. He had a straight razor in his hand. He waved it at them and told them not to come any closer. If they did, he warned he'd have to kill them. Well, Chester asked what had happened, and John told him that he and his family had been going to Greenfield that morning, but he had killed his family instead. He said he'd been living in hell for the past three years and could stand it no longer. He was going to kill himself now and would be done with it all because he refused to go to prison. Well, pausing for a moment, though, John produced a checkbook. He told Chester that he owed someone for some corn and asked him if he would take the check to the person and settle his debt. Well, Chester abruptly backed away. He didn't want any part of this, he stammered, and he pushed past Alan Taylor, got on his horse, and rode away. Well, John now tried to get Alan to take the check from him, and he also tried to give him $5 in payment for some work that Alan had done for his family. Well, Alan took it, and when he did, he saw that John's hands were shaking. The man was speaking to him normally, but he seemed very nervous. Then John turned his back and walked away. He paused for a moment by Holda's body, lifted her arms up, and then let him fall back down onto the porch. He stared at her for a moment, no expression on his face, and then opened the back door and went into the house. While Alan fled, he rode back to his own farm and called the sheriff, but the authorities would arrive too late to prevent further bloodshed and further strangeness. By the time that Alan Taylor left the Hoskins farm and the sheriff arrived, other neighbors came by and spoke with Hoskins. He stayed inside the kitchen, talking to them through the door. He told them the same story, and he also warned that he had a loaded shotgun just inside the door. He said he'd kill anyone who tried to approach him. When one man tried to get into the kitchen door, John shouted he'd shoot him if he came inside. Well, eventually two neighbors rushed the door and got into the house, but they didn't find John waiting with a gun. Instead, they found him lying on the kitchen floor in a pool of blood. He cut his own throat with the straight razor and one of his wrists, and by all appearances, he was dead. By this time, the sheriff and some of his deputies had arrived with a doctor. The doctor checked for signs of life from Holda and Gladys and Roy, but all of them were dead. He bent down to look for John's pulse and amazingly found he was still alive. After a cursory examination, though, he stated that John was past saving. Well, just as he started to stand up, John's hand and leg twitched, and he started to come around. The doctor gasped, grabbed some rags, and tried to stop the bleeding coming from the wounds in his throat and his wrist. And as he tried to treat the farmer's cuts, the other men stared in disgust at John's brutal handiwork. 
The kitchen was spattered with the blood of the innocents who were lying dead on the floor. Hulda was dead outside. One of the men took a blanket and covered her corpse. Merlin was nowhere to be found, not at first. Shotgun shells were scattered across the floor and the gun itself was loaded and propped in the corner near the door. It was opened and carefully unloaded. As he examined John's wounds, it soon became apparent to the doctor that they were mostly superficial. Neither cut had done any significant damage and certainly not enough to threaten his life. Looking at the sheriff and the other assembled men, the doctor told them that John would recover. Well, standing in that blood-soaked kitchen, that news likely came as a disappointment to most of the men standing there. The sheriff ordered John to be treated and then taken to the county jail in Corning, Iowa. With John Hoskins behind bars, the coroner's inquest was held. Witnesses who were at the house that day were called to testify. A horrific timeline of events soon emerged based on testimony from Irene and her brother Merlin who, as it turned out, had witnessed some of the violence before fleeing to his uncle's house. Irene testified that she and Gladys had slept in until nearly 6.30, that's apparently late on a farm, uh, which was much later than her father had wanted. The family had planned to leave to go see John's parents that morning and he was eager to depart. Well, the delay caused John's mood to turn sour. He barked at the children and began arguing with Hulda. According to the children, the arguments were a regular occurrence, as was his short temper with the children and stepchildren. In fact, earlier that month, John had grabbed Roy by the throat and tried to strangle him. When Hulda and Irene stepped in to try and break it up, John attacked them too. And the disagreement injured, or ended without any further injury, but it was a sign of more violence to come even though no one had any idea of just how bad things would get. As John argued with his wife on the morning of January 15th, the children sat down to the table for breakfast. Soon John joined them and Hulda went outside to the separating house where farm butchering was done to get some lard. In the middle of his meal, John suddenly stood up and walked out the back door. Outside, he picked up a piece of a wooden buggy axle that he used for mixing hog feed. It was a heavy wooden shaft ringed with metal to make it sturdier. Carrying the axle, he came back into the house. He walked over to Gladys and without a word, clubbed her in the head with it. The young woman fell out of her chair, crumbling to the floor, bleeding badly. John swung again, this time striking Roy. Irene let out a piercing shriek as she and Merlin ran from the room, terrified for their lives. Irene slammed through the back door and ran around the house. John ran after her, catching her easily in the front yard. She fell to the ground, begging her father to stop, but John ignored her cries. He swung the axle and clipped the side of her head. Blood sprayed from the gash, and John turned away, leaving her there on the front lawn. He apparently assumed he'd killed her. Merlin had also sprinted out of the house after Gladys and Roy were struck. He was running across the yard when his father called out to him. Well, the boy froze in place, petrified with fear. But John didn't plan to kill him. Instead, he told him to take his horse and ride to his uncle's farm. He wanted Merlin to tell his uncle what had happened that morning. John then returned to the house. When he walked into the kitchen, Gladys and Roy were both still alive, but they didn't stay that way for long. He bludgeoned them both with the axle, hitting them over and over again to make sure they were dead. And then Hulda unknowingly walked back into the house. She carried a lard pail in her hands, and when she walked into the kitchen, she discovered her children lying dead on the bloody floor. 
and the pail dropped from her hands with a loud clatter. John charged toward her and struck her in the face with the axle. She stumbled backward onto the porch and John followed, hitting her again and again until she fell on the porch. On the front lawn, Irene had recovered her senses. Weaving, she walked back toward the house and saw her stepmother lying on the porch. She staggered over to Hulda. The woman was alive but badly hurt. She told Irene to run away and get help, which sent her fleeing to the Taylor farm. With the last of her strength, Hulda crawled toward her two children on the kitchen floor, but she didn't make it. She was able to pull herself only a few feet closer to them before she died. But when the inquest came to an end, not a single sound was heard in the room, but one woman who was weeping in the back row of chairs that had been assembled. During the inquest, a picture of John Hoskins had emerged that was unlike anything his friends and neighbors had expected. He'd always seemed friendly to everyone who knew him, but to his family, he was a much different man. He was a man filled with rage, capable of violent mood swings and with a fearful temper that had led to, on multiple occasions, threats to kill his entire family. Eventually, those words spoken in anger were no longer just threats. The inquest was concluded with the coroner's jury finding that Holda and her two children, Gladys and Roy, had been beaten to death by John Hoskins. John was almost immediately brought to trial and surprised everyone by entering a plea of not guilty. He'd already confessed to the murder several times and had even recounted the grisly crimes in great detail to his jailers. Well, many people, including the prosecutor, expected this was a ploy to try and prove he was insane. That would automatically mean that he was incompetent to stand trial since he was unable to understand the difference between right and wrong. That way, John could avoid the death penalty and would be sent to a secure mental hospital until he was deemed sane enough to stand trial. Well, this was a realistic defense, and any good lawyer would certainly attempt it. After seeing the crime scene, or even just hearing about it, it wouldn't be hard to believe that only someone who was crazy would do the things that John Hoskins did on that cold January morning. It was easy to believe that, but most people didn't. Hoskins was insane, and his half-hearted suicide attempt proved it. If he was truly insane and wanted to die, he would have kept cutting at his wrist or neck until he bled to death, but he didn't. The cuts weren't life-threatening at all, and they felt this proved he wasn't crazy. The prosecutors, no matter what the plea John offered, only wanted a solid conviction and justice for the surviving members of the family. From the start, both law enforcement and the county attorney took their time, gathering every scrap of evidence available to them. After the trial began, they methodically called witness after witness, sparing the jury no detail of the horrific murders. Irene was forced to relive how her father had attacked her and left her for dead. Merlin testified about his own terror, what he'd seen, and the things John said to him before he rode off. Neighbor after neighbor was called in to give testimony, each one filling in more and more details of that horrible day. At the end of each day in the courtroom, John Hoskins was left with a lot of time to think about the trial. As more evidence was heard against him, he began to feel less confident about his chances of winning. If he lost, he'd go to the gallows. He started having second thoughts about his wish to die. John sent for his attorney and told him he wanted to change his plea. He'd admit to being guilty. He might have to spend the rest of his life behind bars, but at least he'd be alive. And then he wrote out his confession. He blamed the murder of Hulda on a series of injuries he'd sustained. Starting in about 1914, he claimed that year a large wooden pole had fallen out of its storage space in the barn loft and struck him in the head. 
and he'd been suffering from terrible headaches ever since. Then in late 1918, he'd suffered a bout of Spanish influenza, which had killed millions around the world. He'd survived, of course, but the high fever he'd had when he was sick, well, it must have done something to his mind. Essentially, John was claiming that none of it was really his fault. He'd been temporarily insane due to outside factors, but now he was clear-headed and understood the gravity of his actions. Well, the judge was notified of the plea change and the court was called back into session. John was brought into the courtroom and his attorney officially entered John's plea, handing over the written confession. The prosecutor still asked the death penalty be given, but the defense reiterated John's claims of temporary insanity and asked that he be spared the noose and given a life sentence instead. Through all this, John said nothing. He showed no emotion and no regret, sadness, or guilt. When the judge asked if he had anything to say, John simply replied, no. John Hoskins was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life imprisonment at the Iowa State Penitentiary in Fort Madison, Iowa. With all his crimes laid bare, the entire region knew what John Hoskins had done. Did I mic go out again? Yeah, there's no mic. I don't think it's on you. I think it's yours is working. Okay, now we're working. Well, ghosts. Anyway, with all his crimes laid bare, the entire region knew what John Hoskins had done, but no one knew why he'd done it. John never told. He blamed it on being hit in the head and having a fever, but he never revealed what made him snap that day and kill three people. To this day, we still don't know why he murdered his family. With their father locked away, Irene and Merlin went to live with their grandparents and both grew up to have families of their own. Merlin stayed in the area and became a farmer. Irene married and worked as a beautician. She and her husband later moved to California. And it went out again. Oh, now we're back on, okay. John settled into prison life and became a model prisoner. He earned a great many privileges and trust with the prison guards and staff because of it. This eventually included being allowed to drive a prison truck between the penitentiary and the city of Fort Madison, presumably under guard. Well, over the next few decades, he tried to earn parole several times, but was always denied. In the late 1940s, Hoskins and his attorney attempted to have two indictments for the murders of Roy and Gladys Campbell removed from his record. We're in and out again. Maybe These indictments had been filed against John in 1919 by a grand jury, but were ignored after his guilty plea and official confession to only hold his murder. However, they were still active and pending. The only way for them to be dismissed was for John to stand trial for those. Assuming any trial would be for show after all those years, John agreed to return to Corning to be tried for the two murders. Many locals turned out to see the proceedings, including many who'd been present at the original trial. But John's plan backfired. It wasn't routine, and he was found guilty on both counts of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to two more life sentences and was immediately returned to the state prison after the trial was over. Then in late 1958, John's original life sentence was commuted to a term of years served. The following year, he was granted parole at the age of 78, having spent 40 years in prison. Before his release, people asked him where he would go. And to their shock, he told them he was going to stay with his daughter, Irene, in California. 
The woman who had once watched her father attack her family and had nearly become one of his victims herself had agreed to allow John to come and stay with her. And he did for a time. But John had become accustomed to prison life and didn't want to stay in California. He begged to return to Iowa. I'm going to say that's never happened in recorded history. (laughs) Anyway, the state granted permission. He didn't return to prison, but he did move to Fort Madison where the prison was located. He died there in 1963 and was buried alone with a simple headstone that gave only his name, birth date, and his death date. There was no indication that the man buried there had committed three terrible murders on his farm in 1919. When John Hoskins died, he left a mystery behind. To the people in Adams County, he seemed to be a loving and caring family man. He was a good friend and a good neighbor. He was hardworking and successful and regularly attended church. His family was loved and respected all around the area. When the murders occurred, people were shocked by what he'd done. They almost refused to believe it. John had grown up with them, worked next to them in the fields, and shared a pew with them at church. But it was said that the ghosts are what changed their minds about John. Rumors spread that the Hoskins farm was haunted. Lights were seen in the windows sometimes, and some claimed they saw faces peering out at them as they passed by on the road. One woman claimed she recognized Hulda herself standing on the back porch. The victims of John Hoskins, it seemed, refused to rest in peace. And that's when the locals realized that John had never been a good man at all. He'd fooled them for years. John didn't just snap one day and suffer some psychotic break. There was a darkness that lurked beneath his smiling facade. He'd planned the killings for months, hatred simmering in his brain until it boiled over and the darkness inside him was allowed to escape. Looking back at the crimes committed by a man they'd known for so long, his friends and neighbors eventually realized there'd never been any kind of goodness in John Hoskins. He'd been a monster all along. And there's more show to come, so stay tuned while we hear from our sponsors. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. 
today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words Dun dun. Yes. All right. <clears throat> Welcome back to American Hauntings. And let me just say thanks to all of you who've come out to listen to us do this live show today and to all listening next week. My name is Troy Taylor. I'm the writer and narrator of the podcast and creator of American Hauntings. And with me is our producer and co-host, Cody Beck, who's standing up. Yes, yeah, sorry. Thank you all for indulging me. Uh, this is my annual picture where oh. I, I show to my parents because they don't understand what I do, but I'm like, I promise I don't ask you for money, so just just trust me. It's, it, and they're happy with that. Um, but yeah, Troy, dead a winner. Is, wait, did my mic go out? No, okay. Yeah. yeah, it's on now. Dead a winner 2024. Who would have thought we'd get all the way here? I don't know. And still be friends. Yeah, that's it right there. Uh, yeah, I thought I had issues with my father, and then <laughs> this story just, holy shit. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's, um, yeah it's, it's a story. Um, you know, I just wanted something that was wintertime. Uh -huh. Oh, I know a good one. It's in January. Let's put that in. Yeah. But then it actually ended up fitting in our season, but yeah, it's... Um, it's perfect. Yeah. So well, is, is this know. guy, is this considered like a family annihilator, or is that a different... Yeah, basically. Yeah, I mean, he didn't kill everybody, but yeah, that's a pretty standard thing. I mean, unfortunately, it's something. It's sad that we have names for things like this. Yeah. That, but they've been around since. Um, you know, I think the first one I ever recorded was like in um, 1700s in this oh, country. Oh damn. Yeah. So they've been around for a long time, and they're you know they're they can cite psychologists and things can cite all kinds of reasons why fathers, husbands, snap one day and wipe out their entire family. Um, unfortunately, one of the things, and I think this is a cop-out, but one of the things they often list is shame. Um, men who are unsuccessful or lose their jobs uh, suddenly decide they don't want their family to know their failures, so they kill them instead. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that's, that's kind of a standard, but it's one of those things that doesn't seem real to me, but I guess... <laughs> I guess it must be. I was going to Well, I was going to say what would it take? Do you think there's anything that could make you snap like this? Cuz I have a few things on my list that I think <laughs> Well, not could... not with family, just usually with friends. <laughs> Got so, <it>. yeah. <laughs> Got it. Um, and I okay, I have yet to read any of your uh, Hell Hath No Fury books, but um, uh, do, are there females that have done this as well? Uh, not usually. Usually uh, women just either kill just their husbands or just their kids. Not usually all of them at the same time. <laughs> not enough. very often anyway. <laughs> I mean, it does happen, but... I guess I can um, understand either. And, and women usually tend to just poison everyone. Yeah, yeah, Or yeah. drown them in the bathtub or something. They don't normally right. go crazy and start beating them with axle uh, poles, you know. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. You know. Oh, man. I guess, yeah, how well can you really... No, no, a person. Yeah, well, and that's that's why I wrote the new book is because I want people to think about who they're sleeping next to. Yeah, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, imagine being Holda here. You know, imagine being the wife who already knew your husband was kind of an asshole anyway, but not that he was gonna kill your entire family. Right. And so all she does is go out to the barn to get some lard and comes back and finds he's killed her, her kids. Yeah. Not his. Well, he tried to kill yeah. Irene, but he let Merlin get away. So I'm going to guess he didn't want his kids dead, just his stepkids. And I, I get that. 
I mean, I, you know, I'm sure my stepfather probably thought the same thing about me well, numerous times, you know, so. I was wondering, was it a coincidence that his kids survived or do well, you think Well, I don't just know. Kinda... He tried to kill Irene, but yeah. for whatever reason, he let his son survive. So, I mean, I think that says a lot about men in general. Uh, I'm going to kill my daughter, but not my son. Yeah. So I don't know. So. Yeah. Do, um, and how old was the son? Did I, I, 12, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. God, so was he was still a kid. I mean, pretty young. I mean, Irene was 18. So she was right, like, right. Because you know. I, I said, how old is Merlin? Because there's a certain age when I would fight my dad, and there's a certain age well, when I, I think wouldn't was fight just, my dad. Yeah, I think he was too young for that. I mean, Fair that, enough. that brings us back to the Lawson family story. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, where, you know, Charlie got rid of Buck and sent him on an errand because uh -huh. Buck could have knocked him out, right. you know, so he didn't want Buck around protecting the rest of the family. Yep. So, yeah, you know. there was one time I beat my dad in arm wrestling and then he wrestled nicer and, to you after that? No, he wrestled oh. and beat the shit out oh, of me. Oh, okay, well that's <laughs> just to establish, you know, dominance. Yes. Um, the thing where John wants to, wants to kill himself, but he wants Chester or Alan to take the check to pay off some debt. Oh, yeah. It, it, that's it, crazy behavior. It, it, it's it's yeah. crazy behavior. It reminds me of that um, that Wilbur show with Elijah Wood. I think it was like uh, a remake where did not see that. He's, he's, he's grinding up a bunch of pills because he's trying to take his own life. But he's like, while he's doing it, he's like reading the back of the ingredients, kind of like, hmm, you know, just kind of like curious <laughs> about it. Like, you're about to die. What are you, what are you doing? Or, well, or, it was it was almost like he was trying to settle his debts before that, he went. Right. So he's, he's wants, you know, he wants Chester to take this check and give it to the guy that he bought the corn from because he's not going to be able to pay the guy because he thinks he's going to be dead right. or not. It depends because he didn't really try that hard to kill himself. But, yeah. you know, to make a dramatic statement, I mean, if he really wanted to kill himself, he just would have used the shotgun right. instead of a straight razor. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, but Chester wanted no part of any of it. Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Road He's past the, the smartest man in the entire story, Chester <laughs> right. Wood. So, you know. No, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's honorable, but if I'm going out, yeah. I'm not paying any of you people back. I'm, yeah. I'm just <laughs> yeah. like. Yeah, that's the whole idea. Right? Yeah, exactly. Run up as many debts as possible. Joe, you've got three months to live. Okay. You know, so. Exactly. Yeah. Um, oh, geez. Let's see. Uh, I, okay, so I was thinking about Holdo walking back in. Um, I've personally seen two people pass away probably in the last three months, not violently or anything like that, and it's still well, you need fucked me up. Friends or a man, something. A man, well, I just need to not be in hospitals. <laughs> well, yeah, um, you know. But I imagined walking out, thinking everything's fine, going to get some lard, coming back in, and yeah. it's just like shock. Yes, your I, kids are in a that would you just, know blood spattered kitchen lying on the floor in pools of blood. I think that would just break my brain. Yeah, well, I think it probably broke hers. So, so 1958, he's paroled at the age of 70. How in the world? How? Well, he'd been in for 40 years. I mean, okay, look, but he, yeah, he know, killed but a bunch of people. Look how many stories from that time period that I've written or we've had on this podcast where people have murdered people and been out in like 10 years. I mean, yeah, it happened. True. It was different back then. Yeah. And they kept him in. And then, you know, when he thought, well, I can get paroled here if I can get those other charges dumped. Yeah. Because the prosecutor had done what 
people still do today. Uh-huh. They charged him with one murder in case something went wrong. Right, right. And then if the trial, you know, went crazy, the jury was nuts, whatever. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, that, you know how that goes sometimes. So sure. they just decided that they would just try him for once. Well, he'd wanted to get the other ones expunged from his records so that he could be released. And instead, the prosecutor went, no, nah, I don't think so. And then found him guilty of those two. Right. So he's lucky he spent 40 years. 40 years. But they years. figured it was long enough and let him out. Yeah, times but, were better I mean, back not then. Not that he did anything when he got out. Sure. I assume, other than go live back, with try to get back into prison probably and go live with irene so he was like you know brooks from uh, shawshank yeah you know oh. had just become acclimated to prison and didn't know what to do when oh he got out, brooks so. was here yeah um i'm guessing aside from the family abuse and that the things are escalating we don't really know too much about his like other violent past i'm assuming no he had. just only what little you know irene told at the but they really just wanted to focus on, you know, inquests. We've talked about those a lot. In episodes we've done, they only focus normally on exactly what happened because right. it's for a coroner's jury. So um, she shared that, and I don't think she really talked about it much. But for whatever reason, as she grew up, apparently, I don't know. I don't know that she forgave him, but she maybe thought he was a changed man. I wouldn't want that guy in my house, frankly. So, I mean, even if I didn't think he was dangerous, I still wouldn't want any contact with him. No, no. Whatever. Absolutely not. Yeah, I'd want to ask him, like, what what happened to all your pets growing up? Like, tell me one by one. I mean, she was a beautician, and we know they're not. Where's Felicia? Yeah, we know they don't really think clearly most of the time. So it's, you know. Um, well, those are all the questions I had, but I do have a couple other things I wanted to share with sure. you. Okay. One, this is just a bad bit, but just in case, shit gets weird out there. So in case anything the power goes out, anything crazy a, a happens, a, a anything candle? crazy happens, okay. it was Cody in the ballroom with the candlestick. So <laughs> there you go. That we know. That works. And then this is the field guide to North American monsters. So if anybody has listened to the early episodes of the show, I really hope you haven't. But if you have, um, I stumbled into Troy's bookstore um, not too far away from here when I was about seven or eight years old um, with one of my buddy, with Charlie Brockus, who does a lot of our music. And uh, this was the first book that I bought about monsters and weird Things. Is your name written in crayon in the front of that? Uh, Open some... that back up. Flip that page back open. Oh, yeah. that's marker. It's marker. I thought it was crayon. So. It's also it's also on the little binding thing. I didn't oh, want. I yeah. wanted to make sure everybody knew it was mine. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so this was like the first scary book that kind of got me into everything. So I kind of want to just say like, a lot of me is your fault. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'm aware of that. So. And, and then, it's like creating a monster. And then I had one more surprise that it didn't end up happening. It was another bit that didn't work out, but I'm going to just tell you. Um, I got a cameo from Tony Todd from Candyman oh. that was supposed to be due yesterday, and I was going to project it on the screen, and he never turned it in. Oh, that's too bad. So I'm really sorry, but if I ever get it, I'll send it to you. And if not, I have a lot of cameo credits, so we can just start, we can just start pranking <laughs> people with Everyone. Weird, yeah. weird cameos. But thanks for nothing, Tony. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's all I had. Does anybody have a question? About, about anything. About this story? Oh, or about anything, apparently. Um, Financial advice. No. Relationship. No, no, no one wants that. 
That's uh, all right. Well, if you have a question later, or if you have a comment or something about the show, you can email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com, or, as many of you do, you can text us on the haunt line at 217-791-7859, and it might get read on the show. In fact, it will get read on this show because I'm going to cut some stuff in before the ghost stories. Hey. So we will have, because I have a bunch of them sitting in the office. Nice. So if you send it right now, I'm not going to see it until I get home. So, uh, But we will put them in. So, uh, all right, well. Thanks for listening, and uh, please share the show with your friends, neighbors, anyone you know. If you like the show, or even if you don't like the show, leave us a five-star review on iTunes anyway. And if you're going to say something mean, just make it funny. That's all we ask. Yeah. Um, or you can send us an email or drop us a text line on, on the haunt line, which people I seem to like because it seems like it's become like the, the iTunes podcast reviews are just trolls now so yeah. anyway you could check us out on social media you can find cody and i on facebook instagram twitter and sometimes but not very often on tiktok so uh over to you yeah i am for not the ending. i am not on tiktok um anyway uh this episode of the american hauntings podcast was written and performed by troy taylor it was produced and edited and probably kind of messed up by me cody beck <laughs> uh to find out more about the show check out our website at americanhauntingspodcast.com which features show notes links photographs that go along with each episode thanks again for listening we couldn't and definitely wouldn't do it without you so until next time goodbye so long and see you later all right thanks, thanks everybody guys. All right, well, we have just a few minutes before...